Jesus is giving a parable here. The Bible says in verse 15, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard of these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Together, verse 16, Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men that were bidden shall taste of my supper. We're going to finish up our series of sermons on the power of love. Now, most of the sermons we've looked at in this series have talked about how God's love can change us. Today's sermon is going to show us how God's love, God can use us to see others changed. And God wants to use us to compel a lost and dying world to be saved. And so the title of the sermon this morning is this, Love Compels. Love Compels. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take these few minutes we have together and would you help remind us of some important things. Lord, our importance of sharing our, the importance of sharing our faith something that we can neglect, we can forget about, we can grow weary of. But Lord, it's so ever important. Help us to be reminded of that today. May there be an urgency about us. And Lord, I pray that there's someone here this morning that has yet to put their faith and trust in you. Maybe someone that is watching this online, either at the time of uh, the service or maybe even afterwards, after it's been recorded and posted. Lord, that someone would see this and put their faith and trust in you. But Lord, those in the room, help no one to leave the room today without having put their total reliance for their salvation in you. Lord, help us to see the importance of not only being saved, but sharing the good news of salvation with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Here in Luke chapter 14, we find Jesus. He is eating at the house of a chief Pharisee. And uh, they've invited Jesus in, and they're trying to get him caught in his words. They're trying to trip him up. And Jesus begins to tell a whole bunch of parables that involve eating uh, at a banquet or eating at a feast. This is one of those parables. Some time ago, an 18-year-old girl from Washington State attended a local worship service. For the first time in her life, this young lady heard the gospel message. The following Tuesday, the members of that church received a letter from her. Here's what the letter read. It said, Dear church members, Last Sunday I attended your church, and I heard the preacher. In the sermon, the preacher said that all men have sinned and rebelled against God. Because of their their rebellion and disobedience, they all face eternal damnation and separation from God. But then he also said God loves man and sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to redeem men from their sins, and that all those who believe in him would go to heaven and live with God eternally. Then she said this. She said, My parents recently died in rapid succession. I know they did not believe in Jesus Christ, whom you call the Savior of the world. If what you believe is true, they are damned. She said in her letter, You compel me to believe 
that either the message is true, that you yourself don't believe the message, or that you truly don't care. You see, we live only three blocks from your church, and no one has ever told us. I propose that if we really do believe that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and if we really do believe that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, if we really, really believe that, then we would be aggressively, authentically, and affectionately telling everyone, anyone and everyone we could that there is hope for their dying soul. Let's take a look at this parable, Luke 14. Let's go through it verse by verse. And let's notice four thoughts as we consider, consider this final thought about the power of God's love. And we look at this title, Love Compels. If you received a bulletin this morning... On the back of that bulletin is an outline. I encourage you to take notes um, uh, as we go uh, through the sermon today. And please go back and review and let God work on your heart beyond just the message today. Point, thought number one of the message this morning is this, the preparation. The preparation. Jesus tells a parable about a man who is very rich and wealthy. And that man went out of his way to make a great supper so that his peers and his friends and his family and even the community at large could come in and eat at this supper. He, uh, he spent a great deal of money putting the best food uh, out he could. He, uh, he pulled out the stops with the decorations and he cleaned the house top to bottom and he uh, must have got hors d'oeuvres ready and he got all sorts of um, uh, uh, party games ready and he even had uh, gifts to send home with people and he had all this planned and prepared and he spent days and weeks, maybe even months, preparing this dinner so that the community at large, beginning with his closest friends, his peers, and then all the way down to the poorest person, could come in and enjoy this party. Look at verse number 15. Jesus is sitting here at uh, this Pharisee's house, and um, he's talking about banquets and eating and what's appropriate and what's proper. And one of the men there uh, at the, uh, at the uh, uh, supper with Jesus uh, speaks up in verse 15 and says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said Jesus unto him, he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. So what uh, are we talking about here? Eating bread in the kingdom of God. Hold your place in Luke 14. Turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter number 19, and look at verse number 9. Um, it's funny, this man made the comment about eating bread in the kingdom of God. And he had no idea when he made the statement that one day there will be bread eaten. Uh, just as though they were sitting around the table there in this Pharisee's house. And Jesus would begin to tell a story about a great dinner that would be prepared. A parable or a, a, a heavenly story with an earthly meaning, if you will. He began to tell this made-up story, this illustration. There, w there will be one day a wedding in heaven. And as our, our ladies, uh, our sisters here, just saying a few minutes ago about that wedding in heaven. There will be a wedding one day in heaven. And you are are invited to attend. Look at Revelation 19 and look at verse number 9. And he saith unto me, now this is the angel who's showing John the Revelator around. He said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. There's going to be a, a dinner in heaven one day, a marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, we have some cooks in this church that can really cook. I'm sure they won't be sitting at the table. They'll be doing the cooking for the supper of the Lamb. Amen? How many believe Brother Ben Salinas will be one of the cooks at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be amazing. Amen? Um, uh, Brother Ben, you can flat out cook. Amen? Uh, my, 
Mike Moyth even says you cook better than her. I didn't say it. She did. But uh, well, there's some good. There's going to be some good food in heaven. But you know what? It's not going to so much be about the food. It's going to be the fellowship. It's going to be the company that we keep. We're going to be sitting around the table in heaven. We're going to be having a great time with God. And the Bible says that everyone is invited to attend. Everyone is welcome to this feast. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. And we'll get a better idea of what the new heaven and the new earth are going to look like. Now, uh, we talked about John uh, the Revelator a little bit last week, last Sunday evening in our roundtable discussion and talked about how God made him to be a biblical eunuch. If you didn't catch that, I encourage you to go back and watch that. But here you have John the Revelator and he is being taken around and shown, shown rather, the new heaven and the new earth and and as it will be in the um, in the kingdom when we get to live with God forever. Look at verse 10, and, and let's read about how amazing this is going to be. We're going to read down through verse 27, so stay engaged with me here. The Bible says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious." even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And let this, let these verses paint an image in your mind of what heaven's going to look like. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you have the gates that represent the Old Testament. You have the foundations with the twelve names, names of the apostles that represent the New Testament. Verse 15, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So this city is cubed, if you will. And he measured the wall thereof in hundred and forty and four cubits, uh, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. Look here. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were, were garnished with all manner of precious stones. Now, I'm not going to be able to pronounce all these stones, but we'll get the ones in here we can. Ready? The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, I can't pronounce that one. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, uh, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, that one. The eleventh, a Janus. The twelfth, an, uh, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Uh, every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and, and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day into it. Or rather, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall be in no there shall in no wise enter to it anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And all God's people said, it's going to be an amazing place. It's going to be a place of, of perfection. It's going to be a place of beauty. It's going to be a place of no night and no sorrow and no struggle. In Luke 14, we begin to read about a man who is preparing a great feast in his palace or in his great uh, mansion here on earth. But my friend, there is construction going on uh, right now in the heavenlies for us to not go to a feast on earth, but for us to be at a banquet hall in heaven and get to live with God in splendor forever. It it's going to be amazing. John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples. This is just a, a, a short time before he would be crucified. And the spirit amongst the disciples was heavy. And Jesus was trying to pick up their spirits. John 14, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. 
believe also in Me. He said this, He said, In My Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Have you ever been around uh, someone you love dearly? And maybe it was like the day before their birthday. And you had prepared them a very special day. I mean, you had it all worked out. And they were sorted down in the dumps. And you're thinking to yourself, if I could just get you to tomorrow, if I could just, if you just knew what I know about what tomorrow is going to be, oh boy, you wouldn't be sad. Oh boy, you wouldn't be down in the dumps if you only knew what I had prepared for you. Here Jesus is looking ahead to a time, sitting there at this chief Pharisee's house, eating. He's eating bread and he's looking around at these men, but he's thinking ahead to a time when the saints in heaven will be gathered around a table and it will be perfect splendor. It will be no sin, no night, no sorrow, no hospitals, no cancer, no sickness, no relational struggles, no depression, no emotional downturns. It will be perfect splendor. God is, uh, uh, Jesus is looking around and saying, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Oh, it's going to be a great day. The preparation. Jesus says that a certain man prepared a great supper. Who was he talking about? Who is the parallel in this parable? It isn't just some earthly man with great riches that's putting out the best food and the best decorations and and, and fancying up the banquet hall and getting the the, the orchestra ready and the hired uh, 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 choir ready. No, he is talking about the angels singing in heaven, the saints singing in heaven, the mansions that will be there, the the Walls of jasper, the gates of pearl, the street of gold, the twelve foundations, the twelve walls. He's talking about a perfect place that Jesus Himself is preparing for us. We see here that there is a great preparation going on in heaven right now. And anyone and everyone is invited to attend. Unfortunately, not everyone takes up the offer to the invitation. Number two, notice the priorities. Thought number two the priorities. We saw the preparation. The preparation, let's look, number two, at the priorities. You know what I mean by priorities is that some people have other priorities than going to this banquet. Look at Luke 14 and verse 16. Then saith he, Jesus, unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade or invited or begged many to come and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. If you want something bad enough, you find a way. If you don't want it, you find an excuse. Amen? How many of you here need to cut your grass? You know why it doesn't get cut? Because you find other things to do. Amen? Many people have a tough time. Uh, doing the things you're supposed to do. How many of you men have a to-do list at home that you need to get to? Amen? You know why you don't? Because you keep finding excuses. Um, This supper was ready, but these men were going to find excuses not to come. Wasn't that they couldn't come? Oh, they could have come. They chose not to come. They had other priorities. Look at verse number 18. And they all with one consent to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. Notice the wording here. He says, I pray thee, have me excused. You know what he's saying? He's saying, validate my excuse. He's saying, sign off on my excuse. Uh, Agree with me that my excuse is credible as to why I can't come. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. Again, I pray thee, have me excused. Validate my excuse. Now, the third guy, he doesn't care about getting his excuse validated. (laughs) The Bible says in verse 20, and another said, I have married a wife, and wherefore I cannot come. That's it. Hey, I'm a newlywed. I don't, I, I, I just have eyes for my wife. I don't care about your dinner. I'm going home to my wife. Amen? 
That's what he's saying. I don't care if you validate my excuse or not. So what are the excuses given here? Letter A, notice some are distracted by their wealth. Some are distracted by their wealth. Look back at verse number 18. The Bible says, And they all with one consent began to make excuses. The first said to them, I have bought a piece of ground. What a bad excuse. And I must need go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Can you feel the smugness in this man's voice? I just bought a piece of property, and I need to go walk around this property I just bought. And I need to feel wealthy as I look at my property. I can't come and eat your rich uh, master's food because I have my own property I need to go and inspect. You know, many people are not going to go to heaven because they're too wealthy for God. You know, I go uh, out, and listen, we have some, I would assume we have some folks in here that have some wealth to them. By the way, it's all perspective, right? Compared to most of the world, we're pretty wealthy here. The person in here that's the poorest, you live a lifestyle that's far more comfortable than people around the world. There are plenty of people that complain about America. It's a pretty great place to live. If you don't believe me, go live in most of the places in the world, and you'll have a newfound appreciation for what we have here. By far, we're not perfect. We had a lot of problems here. Got a lot of problems here. America's become America has become a place where folks come from other parts of the world. Why? Because they want what we have here. So you be careful about complaining about our country. You have a problem with our country? Get on your knees and pray. Amen. That's what this nation needs. It needs its Christians to get right. Amen. I shouldn't have chased that rabbit, but I did. All right. But we're wealthy here, right? But wealthy people oftentimes think they don't need God. I'll go, uh, I'll go out soul winning and I'll invite people to the Lord in, uh, in a poor neighborhood and I have no problem striking up a conversation with someone about the gospel. But boy, you go uh, around the corner here to where you have homes that are half a million dollars, they won't even come to the door. If they do, they just shoo you away as quickly as possible. You know why? Because they have money. They don't need God in their eyes. Right? I don't need to come to the Great Supper in heaven because I have my wealth. Some are distracted by wealth. Some are distracted by work. Letter B. Some are distracted by work. Look at verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. Uh, I pray thee have me excused. This guy is a workaholic. He just bought five yoke of oxen or ten oxen, right? That uh, Ten ox that fit. Uh, in teams of two, five yoke of oxen. And listen, I've got to get these ox, uh, oxen in uh, working in tandem, working in pairs, so that I can get more fields plowed and, and, and I can have more product to sell. And I've got to work and work and work and work. And I don't have time to go to a banquet. Who has time to sit around and wear fancy clothes and eat fancy food? I've got to go to work. And you know what? A lot of people miss out on, on God because they're too distracted with work. In fact, people skip church because they're too distracted with work. Clearly, that's not you all. You're here. Amen? But there are folks who skip out on church because they need to work. And there are people who don't take time to hear the gospel and how to be saved because they're too busy with work. And we have a problem with people in our society who are lazy, but we also have a problem with people in our society who are workaholics. Listen, don't work so hard that you miss out on your opportunity to put your faith and trust in Christ and be saved. You have your nose to the grindstone and you never have the chance to see the importance of putting your faith and trust in Christ. Let her see some are distracted by their wife, by their wealth, by their work, and by their wife. And if you're a lady in here, you can put by their husband. Amen? By their wife. Husband doesn't start with a W. Wife does. Amen. Look at verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. This man here said, hey, look, I'm a newlywed. I don't have time to go out, go, go to your feast. I want to go home and be with my wife. And uh, on a broader perspective, I know not everyone in the room is married, and that's fine. But on a broader perspective, we can, be, we can be distracted by relationships. Whether that's relationships with your parents, relationships with your siblings, relationships with your friends. Uh, we got to go here. Uh, we got to go there. And we don't have time for God because we're too busy spending time with other people. And this man here, he said, sorry, I can't come to your feast. I, I've got a relationship I've got to worry about. I've got friends. I've got family. I, I can't come to the feast. You see, uh, and this is a very important point. Many people say, how could God send someone to hell? You understand this. God has an open invitation for everyone to go to heaven. If someone goes to hell, they're rejecting the invitation. 
God is saying, look, I'm making the feast. I'm preparing heaven. I want you to come. I'm extending the invitation. It's the smugness of, of, of humanity that says, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'd rather not come. By the way, look at the uh, end of the parable, verse number 24. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. You know what? Here's the truth. Those that accept Christ, Christ accepts them. Those that reject Christ, Christ rejects them. The ball is in your court. The ball is in your court. If you want Christ to accept you, you have to accept Him. If you want Christ to reject you, then you choose to reject Him. And by the way, by choosing not to accept Christ, you are choosing to reject Christ. Number one, we see the preparation. Number two, the priorities. Number three, notice the poor. The poor. Look back at verse number 21 of Luke 14. The Bible says, So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. So a large banquet hall, and this man goes out and finds the poor and the maimed meaning those with physical handicaps, the, the, the halt and the blind. He, he gathers up the outcasts of society and he brings them into this rich man's banquet room and he sits them down as though they're ready uh, to have a banquet. And you know who there's an open invitation to? It isn't just the rich that are invited into heaven. It's the poor. It's the poor. Hey, listen, God does not care what your background is. God does not care what the color of your skin is or your culture. He doesn't care about your wealth class. He doesn't care about what country you came from. God loves everyone exactly the same. You may be here today and you may have a million dollars in the bank. You may be here today and owe a million dollars to creditors. You know, God loves you just the same. And, and, and the, the invitation for you to go to heaven... God doesn't look at your bank account to see whether or not He wants to let you in. God doesn't look at the pigmentation in your skin to decide whether or not He wants to let you in. You could be here today and you could have some sort of um, a skin defect to be purple or blue or orange. Uh, our president's orange, amen? You could be any of those colors. And you know what? God would still save your soul because He doesn't look at the skin. He looks at your heart. You're an eternal soul and He wants to save you. He wants to save you. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for you to be poor. Look at, uh, look at Matthew. Actually, if you would, turn over to Luke chapter 18 for me. You're in Luke 14. Turn over to Luke 18. While you're turning there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, do you have to be um, uh, poor in the bank to go to heaven? No, but you do have to be poor in spirit. You know what that means? You must humble yourself. I, in my years of being a pastor, both a lead pastor and an assistant pastor, I have had some really wealthy people sit across from me, whether that be at a restaurant or in my office. They've been very wealthy. In fact, I've had millionaires plenty of times sit down with me who were lost. While they were rich in their bank, they were poor in their spirit. They had had a loved one die. They had had something go tragically wrong in their life. They sat there with a tear in their eye. And they bowed their head and they got saved. You know, sometimes God lets hardships come to rich people so that He can empty their spirit so they'll turn to Him and be saved. Look at Luke chapter 18, verse 25. Jesus here is, is, is making that same point. It says, For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Wow, what a statement. When I was a boy, I didn't know this word, but to, to put it in adult language, when I was a boy, I wondered, is the Lord using hyperbole here? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye, or a, a needle's eye than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Listen, have, how many of you here have ever tried to thread a needle and just gave up because you couldn't do it? All the men raised their hand. Amen? After about five minutes, I say, I can't do this. I just set it down. 
I can't get a thread through the eye of a needle, much less a camel. You can't put a camel through the eye of a needle. And listen, I've heard all sorts of whack explanations of this verses. This verse. You know what God, Jesus is trying to say here? He's trying to say that if you are proud in your heart, you are rich in pride, you cannot go to heaven. However, if you're poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. There are people who have no money in the bank, but they have a lot of pride in their heart. And you know where they're going to go when they die? They're going to go straight to hell. Because their pride causes them to reject the invitation. There are plenty of people in this world that have a lot of money in the bank, but are very poor in their spirit. They're humble. And you know what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has there been a point in time in your life where you've humbled your heart and you've put your faith and trust in Christ alone? You see, because I believe most of the people in this room are saved, but I don't know about everybody. Some of you that are saved, don't grow bored with this part of the message. Please give me your attention. The person next to you may need to hear this. You see, it's human nature to want to do things on our own. Oh, I can do it. I can do it. I can get there. I can accomplish it. You can't get to heaven on your own. In fact, Jesus needs 0% of your effort to get to heaven. He needs 100% of your faith. He already did the work. He needs you to believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace. Whose grace? It's God's grace. For by grace are we saved. That's what we want, right? Go to heaven, be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. He provides the grace. You provide the faith. He just simply wants you to humble your heart and say, I can't get to heaven on my own. But I can get to heaven because of Him. These folks got to come into this rich man's palace and enter his banquet room and sit down and eat. Because they were poor enough to want it. They were poor enough to admit they didn't deserve it. But the invitation was there. I don't know why God saves sinners, but I'm sure glad He does. I don't know why God reached down and saved me when I was lost and unlovable, but He did. That day happened when I believed in Jesus. Who came to the banquet that day? Those that had wealth? No. Those that were busy with work? No. Those who were distracted by a wife? No. Who came to the banquet that day? Oh, they were invited. They rejected the invitation. Who came to the banquet that day? Those who were poor. Those who were maimed. Those who were halt. Those who were blind. Those who were infirmed. They're the ones that came to the banquet that day. And God is looking for you to humble your heart and see how broken you are from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ. Okay, that's the appeal to the lost. Now let me give an appeal to the saved to finish the message. Number one, we saw the preparation. Number two, the priorities. Number three, the poor. Number four, and lastly, notice the push. The push. Look down with me at uh, verse number 23 and verse number 24. We're going to begin with verse number 23. I'm going to stop just after the first phrase. I'm going to ask you some questions. And classroom, I want you to participate this morning. Amen? The 830 crowd, i got one person to say something. I want all of you to participate. Amen? Even if you don't know the answer, just guess at it. All right, here we go. And the Lord said unto the servant. Okay, question. In this parable, who does the Lord, the, the Lord, little l Lord, who does the Lord or the master or the homeowner represent? Who does it represent? Good. All right, say it with confidence this time. Ready? Okay. Who does the servant represent? The church. Those who are saved. How many of you here are saved? Raise your hand if you're saved. 
Amen. So, the Lord God said unto His servant, You and me. Alright? We all on board here? We understand? What did the Lord tell His servant? You understand that you're either going to be a slave to sin or a servant to Christ. Amen? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Isn't that what the psalmist said? Alright, so what? if you're someone's servant, that means whatever he says, hey, we're going to do. Alright, we're on board here? Let's see what he tells them here. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Alright, the title of the sermon, Love Compels. Notice letter A. An aggressive push. An aggressive push. What does that word compel mean? Now, i got to tell you, if I was the one writing the Bible, I wouldn't have put that word in unless God directly told me, which is what he did. That's a strong word. Here's what the word compel means. It means to force or drive, especially to a course of action. To force or drive, especially to... To a, that's an aggressive word, is it not? That's an aggressive word. So, he tells his servant, okay, you went and got the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind, and you got them in, but the, there's still seats available. There's still banquet tables that are there with nobody in it. He said, I want you to now go out into the highways and hedges. If I could, uh, the streets and lanes would be the inner city. The highways and hedges would be the suburbs. You go out and you get more people and you aggressively push them. You compel them to come to the banquet. Get them here. Get them in the seats. Help them be here. Compel them. Force them. Drive them to be here at this banquet. Would that describe your soul winning effort, Christian? When was the last time you compelled someone to be saved? You see, we're soft. Christians are soft. Oh, I'd give that guy a track, but he may look at me funny. Do you believe he's the eternal soul? Do you believe that he's going to spend eternity in heaven or hell? Then who cares how he looks at you? Listen, uh, and I, I, I don't mean to use a tired example, but boy, it's so appropriate here. If I had the cure for cancer and you had cancer, and I genuinely cared about you. And I came to you and said, hey, look, I have the cure for your cancer. You don't need to go see the oncologist. You need to come see me. I promise you, I have the cure for your cancer. And you looked at me and said, yeah, but let me see your credentials. Well, I really don't have any credentials. But I promise you, I have the cure for cancer. And you say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going down that path. I'm going to go see over here. But you have pancreatic cancer and you're going to die. It's a certainty. You have stage four pancreatic cancer. All the oncologists can do at this point is extend your life a little bit longer. If you come see me, I will be able to cure you. And they say, no. You know what I'd do? I'd grab you by the collar and I'd say, come with me. I'm going to cure your cancer. I would force you. I would drive you. And you know what? After you were cured, you look at me and say, thank you for being so aggressive in pushing me. Thank you for staying on me until uh, I, you, you, you saw me healed. You know what we do? We push and we push and we push. Now, I'm going to talk about tact and all that in just a moment, okay? And, I, and I'll get to that in a moment. But Christians are so tactful, they don't tell anyone. We're so tactful, we're, 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 we're timid and we're shy. And we don't share our faith. You know, 90% of people who are saved, they don't ever tell anyone about Jesus. Why is that? Boy, I began this sermon with a story about a girl who lived three blocks from a church and her parents went to hell because no one in that church cared enough to go down and knock on their door. Do the neighbors three, do three, three doors down from you, forget three blocks, three doors down, do they know that you're a Christian? Do you even know who they are? You see, church, 
I'm not trying to be right and be mean. I'm trying to wake you up a little bit. I'm trying to light a fire. I'm trying to compel you. Amen? We have to quit seeing people as black, white, Spanish, Asian. We have to quit seeing people as tall, skinny, short, fat. We have to quit seeing people as good hygiene and poor hygiene. We have to quit seeing people as high social skills and low social skills. We have to start seeing people as an eternal soul. Because if they're human and they're breathing air in and out of their lungs, Jesus loves them and wants to save them. And they're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. The average person you meet on the street, you know where they're going? They're going to hell. Do you even care? Hey, to the teenagers in the room this morning, those kids you go to school with, they have an eternal soul. Are you more concerned about fitting in with them or telling them about Jesus? Hey, those of you that have a job, your coworkers, are you more concerned about getting along with your coworkers or are you more concerned about their eternal soul? Do we dare to care? Boy, the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and edges and aggressively force them, drive them to get saved. Letter A, an aggressive push. Letter B, an authentic push. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me and verse number 1. 1 Peter chapter 3. Boy, sometimes Christians, we need a fire lit, on us, uh, lit under us. Sometimes we need our toes stepped on a little bit. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? The main thing is not sitting on a cush chair or a pew and having a nice Bible. The main thing isn't even reading your Bible every day and praying. Uh, those things are important that you go to church and you read your Bible and you pray. Those things are important. But what's really important is that we have the good news of Jesus Christ and we have a world that needs the good news of Jesus Christ and we need to get the good news out to the world. Amen? 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. And this seems like an odd passage, but I'll explain why I'm using it here in a moment here. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the lifestyle or the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation or lifestyle coupled with fear. What's this passage saying? It's saying that if you have a saved wife and a lost husband, that lost husband may not get saved by what the Bible says, but that lost husband may end up getting saved by the authenticity of the faith of the wife. If that wife's faith is authentic and true and real and mature, God can use that powerful, authentic lifestyle to take a lost husband and see him come to salvation. And this church has been blessed to see that happen more than once. Amen? You know, uh, I've heard many people say this, and I'm guessing you have too. I've heard many people blame pharisaical, hypocrite Christians as the reason why they won't get saved. How many of you ever heard somebody do that before? I get saved, but Christians are so fake. I get saved, but Christians are so phony. Hey, don't you be that phony Christian that trips somebody up. Hey, God's not calling you to be perfect, but He is calling you to be that light set up on the hill. When Benjamin Franklin wished to interest the people of Philadelphia in street lighting, he didn't try to persuade them by talking about it. He hung a beautiful lantern up on a long bracket in front of his home. Listen here. Think about this from a spiritual standpoint. He kept the glass highly polished. Every evening at the approach of dusk, he carefully lit the wick. People saw the light from a distance, and when they walked in its light, found that it helped them to avoid sharp stones on the pavement. Others placed lights at their homes, and soon Philadelphia recognized the need for street lighting. As others learn of peace and joy you have in your life in Christ, as others begin to see the gospel radically change you and make you into an authentic, real Christian, you know what they're going to see? They're going to see their own need for that same Savior. 
Your witness through personal testimony may be just what someone is waiting for. Are we authentic Christians? You know, uh, years ago I was a college student and I was, uh, I paid my way. I didn't take out any uh, uh, student debt. I, I paid my way through college month by month, a tuition plan. And I worked 40 hours a week, an hour from the college. I drove, uh, I stayed in the dorms, went to classes, and then worked a full-time job. And I made terrible grades. But I graduated debt-free. Amen? Uh, but I remember working that job. I drove a forklift in the cold in Chicago. And it was, I was under a lot of stress. I was being stretched really thin. And I can remember times where the supervisor who was lost would not handle me right. He would uh, abuse me, he'd give me a heavier workload, or he'd get nitpicky with me in some area. And Boy, I could feel my flesh beginning to bow up. I could feel myself getting angry. And, and I never cussed at him, but there were times where I would talk to him in a way that was unkind. There were times where I talked to him in a way that was uh, inappropriate and across the line. And, and this particular supervisor sort of let some of that stuff slide. And so I would do that. I remember one day I was just having a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, really. And, and, uh, and he, just, he just crossed me at the wrong time. And I didn't handle him right. And I got on my forklift. And I'm driving over to the truck that I was unloading. And the Spirit of God spoke to me and he said, How are you acting any different than the lost? Why would he get saved? He knows you're a Christian. Why would he get saved based on that? And I slammed my brakes on. Put my forks down. I dropped my head and said, Oh God, I am so sorry. I turned my forklift around. I went back to the dock shack in the middle of the freight dock and I walked in and I said, Can I have a word with you? And he was really upset with me. And I looked at him and I said, You know I'm a Christian, but I'm not acting like one. I said, I'm not adequately representing my Christ. I'm wrong, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to do a lot better moving forward. He didn't say anything. I turned around and walked out, went back to work. How about you, Christian? Are you a stumbling block or a stepping stone with your lifestyle? Is your lifestyle compelling people to be saved or keeping people from getting saved. Letter C, notice an affectionate push. An affectionate push. Let's finish the sermon in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. I'm almost done here. The Bible says there, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Christian, don't beat people over the head with the Bible. Some people care so much about seeing the lost saved that they don't take the time to develop the proper relationship with them first. They just view us as a Bible thumper. We just walk around thumping the Bible at them all the time. You've lost all credibility with them. You see, part of compelling someone is persuading them. And in order to be able to persuade someone to be saved, they must view you as credible. That means you must spend time with them on things outside of the Bible to develop their relationship with them, to talk to them about the Bible. Amen? If every time they see you coming, they think, oh, here here he comes again. Oh, here she comes again. Oh, she's going to quote another Bible verse at me. Oh. You know, it's okay that they know you love God and you're genuine about your faith. But how about you start by asking them how their day is? How about you show an interest in them as a person? Oh, I'm not talking about going out drinking with them. I'm not talking about uh, participating in sin with them. I'm not even talking about being friends with them. I'm talking about being friendly with them. And through that relationship, you push and you push and you push and you push Why? Because in the back of your mind, there's this thought, boy, that loved one of mine, that peer of mine, that neighbor of mine, that co-worker of mine, 
that clerk on the other side of the uh, of the checkout counter at, at Stop and Shop, or that that clerk that I see uh, regularly at, uh, at at the gas station, or that person that hands me my across the counter my coffee every morning. They're a soul. They're a soul. They're a soul. They're going to go to heaven or they're going to go to hell. And I have the news, the good news, and I need to tell them, and I need to push them, and I need to encourage them because I want them to go to heaven. When they see that you care, when they see that you love them, when they see that you're concerned about them, they uh, oftentimes will accept the invitation to be saved when the time is right. Boy, I don't want anybody that I know to go to hell because I didn't tell them. Boy, let them go to hell because I told them. And they rejected the invitation. I finished with this illustration. In 1969, in past Christian Mississippi, a group of people were preparing to have a hurricane party in the face of a storm named Camille. Now, I lived in Mississippi, and Camille is still talked about to this day. The wind was howling outside the posh Richelieu apartments when the police chief, Jerry Peralta, pulled up sometime after dark. A man with a beer in his hand came out to the second floor balcony and waved. The chief police yelled up, y'all need to clear out of here as quickly as you can. The storm's getting worse. But other people began to pour out of the apartment with the man on the balcony, and these folks just laughed at Peralta's order to leave. One man said, this is my land, and if you want me off, you're going to have to arrest me. Peralta didn't arrest anyone. However, he wasn't able to persuade them to leave either. He wrote down the names of the next of kin of the 20 or so people who gathered there to party through the storm. They laughed at him as he took their names. They mocked him as he drove away. These folks had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. It was 10.15 that night when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Scientists clocked Camille's wind speed at more than 205 miles per hour. To that date, it was the strongest on record. Raindrops hit with the force of bullets, and waves off the Gulf Coast crested between 22 and 28 feet high. News reporters later showed that the worst damage came ashore at the little settlement of motels and gambling houses known as Past Christian Mississippi, where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the Richelieu Apartments. Of that apartment complex, nothing was left of that three-story structure but its foundation. The only survivor was a five-year-old boy found clinging to a mattress the following day. You think it was fun for that police chief to get mocked? You think that police chief enjoyed being made fun of by those hooligans, those fools that died that day? I don't think so, but I think the next night that police chief put his head on the pillow He felt peace that he had done his part. And he had done his job. How about you, Christian? Are you doing your part? The Lord has said unto his servants, us, go, compel. Are we doing what he's told us to do? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed.